0: This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most
1: powerful women. Ensuring that communications about the virus are clear, accurate, and transparent will be essential.
0: We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The coronavirus pandemic has sparked fear around the globe as there's no vaccine to prevent it and there's no cure for it. People are being encouraged to practice social distancing to help prevent the spread of the virus. Those who may have been exposed to the virus are told to self quarantine for 14 days. Someone who recently did a 14 day self quarantine is Catherine Bliss, a senior fellow in the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. She was already scheduled to join me for a conversation about her research on GAVI, the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunizations. So we started our conversation by talking about what it's like to be quarantined for 14 days. Catherine, thanks for joining me here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Thank you. For our listeners, if you notice a difference in the audio quality or hear background noises, Catherine and I are speaking by phone in remote locations because our entire office is now teleworking. So, Catherine, first, let's talk about you specifically. Um, how talk, talk about how you were exposed to coronavirus.
1: Sure. So on March 7th or 8th, my family received a notice that we might have been exposed to a confirmed case of COVID-19 or coronavirus in the district. So we learned that DC Health was asking everyone who might have been in the presence of that case to self-quarantine until 14 days after the last known contact, which in our case was March 15th. So we were really only in self-quarantine for about a week, um, but it was until 14 days after our last known contact with that case. And how are you doing? How is your health? Well, we are fine. Um, the week of self quarantine happened right after daylight savings, so it was tough to stay inside on beautiful afternoons when we could see the sun shining, the trees budding, and children playing right across the street at Lincoln Park. Uh, so that was that was tough, but but we are fine, and fortunately, everyone in my family remains healthy.
0: Oh, that's. Excellent news. That's really, really, really great. Now, let's talk about the self-quarantine, because I think our listeners would be curious, what do you do when you literally are not able to leave the house? I'm sure that has to be a challenge.
1: So in my family's case, it happened fairly suddenly. So I, I didn't really have much time to prepare to work remotely or even get our daughters set up for distance learning. Uh, On the other hand, you know, my husband works in D.C. for a West Coast design firm, so he was already completely set up for remote work. Fortunately, we had done a big weekly grocery run that Saturday and actually had a menu of meals planned out, so food wasn't too big a deal. But toward the end of the week, we had to order some groceries to be delivered, and it was the first time we had ever done that, so that was kind of interesting. Somehow the contents of our cart were a little bit off, and we wound up having something like four pounds of green beans delivered you know, with extra time. I dug out an old green bean casserole recipe from the (laughs) 70s that my mother used to fix fried onions and sour cream. It was definitely not diet food. Uh You know, it was actually pretty good. (laughs) So uh, we did a little menu experimentation as well. Well, it sounds delicious.
0: I guess cooking uh, and the family time is one of the, if you can say there's a benefit to being quarantined, I guess maybe that's it.
1: Yeah, we spent the time in different ways. You know, at first, it seemed like we were obsessively checking news about DC Health and the various coronavirus trackers, you know, some of which I follow anyway because of my work with the Global Health Policy Center. But also, you know, with our daughter home, we were trying to come up on our own with lessons so that she could keep up with her class. Uh, she drew a map of coronavirus cases and some pretty amazing uh, drawings of what the virus might look like, plus an essay on what self-quarantine was like from a seven-year-old's perspective. Uh But sometimes, you know, it felt like my husband and I had to do high-level negotiation to get time on the computer or the phone, kind of a tag, you're it, handoff on the stairwell as one or the other of us walked up to the third floor office. Uh Probably for me, the best part of the time was taking our daughter over to the park to run around and burn off energy at off hours when there were very few people around. So remember, this was actually when schools and offices were still open so things were pretty deserted in the middle of the day and we could get a little bit of exercise. And then as a family we got to catch up on some videos. We have been watching the stop-motion series called Sean the Sheep about the adventures of a clever sheep and a bumbling farmer and his dog somewhere in rural England. There's actually no dialogue just a lot of bleating and occasional mumbling and so it's quite funny.
0: What advice before we talk about your work that's actually sort of linked to the space? Uh, before we do that, what advice do you have for anyone who might be listening who might be in, the, in a similar situation? Uh, and what do we need to know about the spread of the virus since there's an increasing likelihood that many more of us may be exposed?
1: In some ways, the week of self-quarantine reminded me of when I was living in western Massachusetts in kind of a rural area. And there was a big unexpected April snowstorm that knocked out power and made it impossible for me to get out of my house for about five days. And so at the time, I basically hunkered down in my living room near the fireplace. I cooked couscous, you know, in a camping kit over the fire and read and did work by sunlight until it got dark and I went to sleep. So, by comparison, you know the self quarantine and nice weather with access to power, gas, and water was pretty a pretty good deal. Now that so many people have shifted to telework, you know, I don't think it will be as challenging to get set up to work remotely. A lot of schools have sent home work or set up folders with lessons and exercises to download. And I think parents won't necessarily be scrambling on their own to come up with lessons. For my family, during the week of self-quarantine, you know, and now, keeping in touch with the outside world is important. It seemed like we were in a little more frequent contact by text or phone with extended family, friends, and neighbors. People were incredibly generous and, you know, sort of checking in, offering to pick up groceries or drop off games and art projects. And our daughter did, you know, some FaceTime video chats with her friends, um, you know, which was really nice. On each side, they were wandering around the house and showing each other their rooms and the kitchen. And she actually had a video piano lesson with her teacher. So I fear I may have lost my iPad to that cause. But, you know, I think that there are ways for people to stay connected and you know, to share jokes and, and fun with each other, even in this time when we really have to maintain distance and not be so socially connected in person. Well,
0: let's turn to talking about your work with Gavi, the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunizations. Let's start by just, for those who may not be familiar
1: with it, what does Gavi do and how does it work? So Gavi is a public-private partnership. It's essentially an alliance of international organizations, donor governments, ministries of health, civil society organizations, and the private sector all working to ensure vaccines are affordable and available for the lowest income countries around the world. And basically, Gavi works with vaccine manufacturers to negotiate low prices for vaccines, and then works with partners like UNICEF and others to purchase the vaccines in bulk to drive prices down further to make them even more affordable for the low income countries. Right now, eligible countries are those that have an annual gross national income per capita of $1,630 or lower, and that they can apply for Gavi support to purchase specific products. And when at the lowest income countries essentially pay about 20 cents a dose per vaccine. And as they develop economically, they begin to pay proportionally more per dose until they are ready to transition from Gavi support and fully self-finance their vaccines. And while Gavi's focus has been on reaching children with vaccines, it makes sense to immunize children when they're young against deadly diseases like measles, diphtheria, pertussis, rotavirus, and others before they are exposed to them. Some of the products that Gavi supports also protect against diseases such as human papillomavirus or hepatitis B that can lead to the development of cancers when people are older as adults. At the same time, Gavi also supports stockpiles of vaccines that can be deployed in emergencies, such as outbreaks of cholera or yellow fever, and more recently, over this past year, Ebola. Was it
0: the high cost of vaccines for low-income countries that led to its creation?
1: So there were a couple of reasons, really. So Gavi was launched in the year 2000. It just celebrated its 20th anniversary this year. And if you look at historical data for immunization coverage, that is you know, sort of the extent to which a population has been immunized against specific diseases... Global rates from the 1980s to the late 1990s really didn't change very much and remained sort of on a global average pretty low. And, you know, a lot of times experts will look at what percentage of the population has had the recommended three doses of the diphtheria, pertussis and tetanus vaccine. Looking at those, those three doses allows them to assess the quality and reach of the system. You know, are people coming in at, you know, different periods to get the first, second, and third dose. And by the early 2000s, that global average was still pretty low. And the gaps between the high-income countries' access to not just DPT, but other vaccines as well, the gaps between their access to the newer vaccines and low-income country access to the same products was quite great. Some people said part of the problem is the disconnect between the public health sector and the private vaccine manufacturers, sort of misunderstanding and mistrust and just a lack of communication between those two. And so there was a growing sense, I think, by the late 90s that manufacturers had to be at the table with the public health community to better understand the needs, challenges and opportunities of progress was going to be made. And so GAVI was really launched at the World Economic Forum in Davos in 2000 in order to bring those diverse sectors together to advance access and affordability of those vaccines in the lowest income settings. If you look at historic data for immunization coverage, which is the extent to which a population has been immunized against specific diseases, the the percentage of the population, global rates from the 1980s to the late 1990s really did not change very much. And one measure that people use uh, to really understand the quality and reach of the system is uh, how much of the population has had the recommended three doses of the diphtheria, pertussis, and tetanus vaccine. So, you know, if a child gets not just one, but is brought in again for the second and then the third, that's a way of understanding that that system is reaching children, and, and that's a good way to understand the extent of the coverage. By the early 2000s, the global average for DPT3 coverage was still pretty low. And in particular, what was concerning was that there were significant gaps between high-income country access to not just the diphtheria, pertussis, and tetanus vaccine, but many of the newer vaccines that had become available and the low-income country access. So, you know, you had children in some of the lowest-income countries really not taking 20 or 30 years before those children would have access to some of the same vaccines that were available in the high-income countries. Some analysis suggested that at least part of the problem was a disconnect between the public health sector and the private vaccine manufacturers, you know, in terms of understanding where markets might be available for some of their products. Some of the analysis suggested that there was quite a bit of mistrust and misunderstanding between the two sectors. And there was also a sense that the manufacturers really had to be at the table to better understand the needs and the opportunities that progress was going to be made. And so for that reason, Gavi was launched at the World Economic Forum in Davos in the year 2000 really as a way of creating this kind of alliance between governments, international organizations, and the public and private sectors. And
0: you recently released a brief on the efforts to continue the funding for the next five years for immunizations of children and the emergency vaccine stockpiles. Talk a little bit about the funding structure and what's needed now. And will the coronavirus emergency that's going on right now have an impact on the efforts to continue this program?
1: So Gavi has estimated that it needs $7.4 billion from donors, both governments and the private sector, to carry out an ambitious work plan for its next strategic period, which is calling Gavi 5.0, which is the period between 2021 and 2025. And the alliance you know, is basically saying that that additional $7.4 billion will allow it to deliver more than 3 billion doses of routine immunizations and also fund emergency stockpiles of vaccines such as those for Ebola, cholera, and yellow fever, as well as deliver inactivated polio vaccine in the eligible countries. Now, the United States has been one of the top supporters of Gavi since the beginning, since 2000 but it is not the largest. Since the year 2000, it has contributed around 12% of total funds to GAVI. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and also the United Kingdom are at the top of that list. Norway has also been a key contributor over time. And Germany, France, Canada, Japan, Sweden, and Australia have also provided critical support. So one thing that we've seen with the plans for the replenishment right now, still I think the intent has been to hold a pledging conference in London in June of this year. And what we see is that Gavi released its figures that it needs the $7.4 billion in August of last year at a conference in Japan. And so over the last few months, countries and other donors have had an opportunity to assess the strategic plan, you know, the proposal, assess the request, and really begin to come up with their own pledges. I don't know what will happen as far as the pledging conference, if that's something that will continue to be held, if it'll shift to an online pledging conference, or if somehow it will be postponed. But, you know, I think that countries have already been coming forward with what they think that they're going to commit or what they're going to pledge. And in fact, at the beginning of February, the United States made a pledge over a four year period of $1.16 billion or $290 million a year, which is essentially consistent with what the United States has been contributing in 2018 and 2019.
0: A kind of related question that I want to ask is about the countries that are benefiting from Gavi. And, you know, in this country, there are some folks who are resistant to vaccines, but in the rest of the world, this is something where there's no question the vaccines are something that we need. Can you talk a little bit about how the rest of the world has been so responsive to vaccines in this way?
1: Well, I think that, you know, if you look at coverage of some of the key indicators over time, we've seen since Gavi's inception and not just Gavi but also you know from 2010 to 2020 we've had the global decade of vaccines and the work of the global vaccine action plan there's been a concerted effort to both raise awareness and to make vaccines available you know across the world in high income middle income and Gavi's emphasis as well on the lower income countries but over the past 15 20 years there's also been a certain amount of growth of questioning and hesitancy or lack of confidence in vaccines in some sectors as well. We've probably seen this more in the context of Europe and the United States, but there are different, I think, manifestations of vaccine confidence or vaccine hesitancy in different areas. And I think one thing that is important to look at is the extent to which there is a broader lack of trust or confidence in the health sector or in the government in particular. And you know, one of the things that we've been looking at within the Global Health Policy Center is trying to understand how campaigns or misinformation campaigns around vaccines and around vaccine efficacy can get started. The extent to which uh, some of these larger questions about confidence influence the ways in which parents are thinking about, you know, how they want to get vaccines for their children, you know, to think about the demand for vaccines, you know, broadly or broadly understood, and to gain a better understanding of the ways in which confidence in you know, vaccines, perhaps specifically, but more broadly in the health context and in government in particular, may be related to broader questions around health security and security specifically.
0: And as we wrap up here, Catherine, are there lessons learned from the work that you've done on Gavi and also vaccine-preventable diseases that could apply as the world tries to figure out how to deal with the coronavirus
1: and COVID-19? So Gavi leadership have said that when a vaccine for COVID-19 is ready, Gavi will be prepared to help ensure it gets to the vulnerable populations in the lowest income countries. So that's something Gavi has already been doing with the Ebola virus vaccine that became available last year, and they've said they're ready to step forward when something is available. But we, you know, we don't know when that's going to be. So I think, you know, in the interim, one thing that the work that we've done and that many other people have done on vaccines in recent years, it really shows that this demand for vaccines and medical interventions is closely related to parents or or people's trust in the health system and in health authorities. And one thing that that means is for providers and scientists and you know experts to, you know, really meet people where they are to speak clearly in terms that they understand about disease risk and how interventions work and how prevention, like vaccines can also work. So I think as we move forward with the coronavirus, the pandemic and um, you know confront what the World Health Organization has also called an infodemic of rumors and false information about the outbreak and about what's happening, ensuring that communications about the virus and any potential vaccine are clear accurate and transparent and really able to be understood and trusted by non-experts will be essential.
0: That is such an important point. And I love the term you use, infodemic, because people really have to feel like they trust the information they're being given. And that's such an important point. Catherine Bliss, thank you so much for being with us here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next
1: time.